Hello and welcome to another episode of Revisiting the Oscars, or as we are, we're going to call this episode Visiting the Oscars, given this Oscars ceremony that we're going to be discussing on this episode hasn't actually happened yet. We're a couple of weeks away from that, so we are going to be talking about the films that are nominated for the 2020 Oscars, or the Oscars celebrating the best films of 2020. Some of you might not have seen some of these films, some of you will have but we're looking forward to getting into the discussion with them. As always, joined by my two co-hosts, I've got Mr. Richard Mason and Mr. Scott Bingham. Guys, lockdown's starting to ease. It's sunny outside. What's not to love? Well, I'll say what's not to love, and that's living in Ireland, where there's frig all happening in terms of anti-lockdown. The only thing I can do today that I couldn't do on Sunday is go to the frigging beach or some shite like that. I can't go for a pint. I've seen pictures on Instagram of people having pints. It's doing my head in. I have to admit, I wet the whistle last night. Oh, makes, me, uh, makes me sick. <laughs> it was it was lovely. It was lovely. Uh, it was absolutely f- Baltic walking home from the pub. It was absolutely freezing. What's going on? It's April. It's snowing at the weekend. I'm desperate to get a pint, but the novelty of a beer outside when it's cold, I think, will wear off pretty quickly. My dad's local, they had six police cars... <laughs> Outside last night after a mass brawl inside the marquee. Is that, so, is that Wigan? That is uh, yes. Um, <laughs> the, the, the marquee that they that they put up is bigger than the actual pub itself. So I don't know how that is um, really well safe. But hey, if you want to fight, people who haven't been fighting in pub car parks for uh, months and they're absolutely desperate for one. Do they chuck pork pies in that in Wigan? <laughs> Pork pies are, are very midland. Pies they're a bit midlands. Just meat and potato for us. It's got more of a splat to it. It's in the face. <laughs> hot, hot gravy squirting out. <laughs> oh, it's good that people have been able to let some steam off. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. Well, Scotland. We've not quite got the pubs open yet, but we are ahead of where you are in Ireland, Mason. So, a couple of weeks' time, and we'll be back out there. But we're we're looking into the future on this podcast, so I'm um, maybe you know by the time one of these films, maybe the father's not out of June. By the time you uh, people have watched the father, I might have uh, been able to about a Guinness. Well, let's keep our fingers crossed for it. Now, the the question that I was going to ask Bingham is, given we are in 2021, is a blast from the past appropriate? Do you have something for us? Yeah, of course I've got something something up my sleeve, so I can rip right into it after the little intro. All right, okay, well, let's say uh, let's give it a blast then. Come closer. Come closer. Come 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 closer. from the past. Close your eyes and visualize this. No wait. Open your eyes and look around you. This month's Blast from the Past is a depressing summary of the present. What do you see? <laughs> a discarded mask used a million times lying next to your makeshift office set up in the scuffed dining room table that you've been sat gormously at for the last year. 
Besides your sets, a huge pile of ripped Amazon boxes that you can't be arsed recycling as the sound of an incoming email hits your inbox. An invite to another fucking Zoom quiz. But it's okay. Don't fear. <laughs> Screw the quiz. You have a cheap eat-out-to-help-out meal at your favourite restaurant, Pizza Express, booked. I don't have any clothes left fit for public consumption. Will anyone care if I wear these tracky bottoms to the meal? After all, it's only Pizza Express and the only posh twat you ever see in there is Prince Andrew. He did look a bit, <laughs> he did look a bit sweaty tonight as you walked in the door. Must have heard the news about Prince Philip's checking out. Or maybe it's the sight of Meghan Markle sitting opposite him giving him the, giving him the ego, evils. I put only lands on your table and you decide to get rat arsed. Why not? You spent the last 10 days self-isolating alone in your miserable, dirty flat. A few limoncellos later and it's hit you. Time flies and you're surrounded by people. There's an upturned car on the street with a bald Becky man shouting at the police that he was only testing his eyesight. Bottles fly past your head. People are marching, shouting and screaming. You spot a scrap. Six men on one. And you're in your drunken haze. You wrestle off the baying mob. You defend the victim. He's a big lad. He's a big lad, all right. Toppled over, non-responsive. You whisper in his ear that it's all going to be okay and you carry him home. People are out in the streets clapping, hitting pots and pans. It must be for you, I think. I'm a hero, a true hero. Then you reach your house, stick the big lad down, stand back and take a look at his stony complexion and it hits you. You've just saved a fucking statue. I thought it was going to be Captain Tom. <laughs> uh, I really didn't know where you were going with that, to be honest. At least I know now why you didn't turn up to my Zoom quizzes. <laughs> no, I was too busy I'm going out for meals at Pizza Express. Zoom yeah. quizzes got old so quick. <laughs> it was like the only thing that you did for a couple of months and then oh, it's just like oh, not, not another one. <laughs> Trying to think of an we, excuse for what else you're doing. At the start, people, we did one every week. It seems mental nowadays. One a week. Yeah, I think yeah. by the time it got to this latest lockdown, which well, was clearly been going on for three or four months now, it's just like, nah, not this shit again. <laughs> not doing all that again. <laughs> it, to be honest, it's that bad that if I walk into a pub and there's a pub quiz on, I'll just go home and I'm desperate <laughs> to go to pubs. Yeah, I'm with you on that. So, in terms of movies then, so clearly the last year has been a bit different. It's fair to say that I think out of the eight nominees between the three of us, we've seen one film each at the cinema. I don't think you've seen any at the cinema, Bingham, or have you? No, I've not seen any, unfortunately. Yeah, so so only one trip to the cinema to see one of these films, which is a bit odd. And I guess what could sum up the snobbery of the Oscars more than nominating a selection of films that haven't even been released yet, at least not in the UK, I guess in America they might have been a little bit, but we had the BAFTAs at the weekend and half the films that were winning awards haven't even been released here yet. Ugh, the BAFTAs. I mean, I don't know if anybody watched it, but the cringy like, laugh track and applause that they put over Dermot O'Leary and Edith Bowman's terrible jokes. Ugh, it, was, it was really. It reminded me of that time when Joanna Lumley presented it and there was actual audience in there and all of the jokes were just quiet. It was... Uh, <laughs> It was just, honestly, so cringe. See, with the jokes, that, or the laugh track, should I say, the thing that I thought was particularly odd about it is, for some people it was louder than others. So mm. it was like, they've obviously deemed this presenter is probably going to be funnier than the last one. So, so he <laughs> or she gets a louder laugh track than that last person. 
There were some, some uh, pleasing upsets of thoughts at the BAFTA, so we'll uh, speak about them maybe when the filming question comes up. But it's an interesting bunch of winners, I thought. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting nominations, interesting winners. And before we do go into the discussion about the films, we will just highlight that we're going to be talking about the eight films nominated for Best Picture, as always, which are The Father, Sound of Metal, Mank, Minari, Judas and the Black Messiah, Promising Young Woman, Trial of the Chicago 7 and Nomadland. And we'll also maybe talk about some of the other films that have been nominated as well as we go through our usual rundown of the highest grossing films of the year, which is a more interesting list than it would be in normal years. And the other thing that I will add is that we are planning to do a brief preview that will focus on some of the other Oscar categories ahead of the awards ceremony next week. So look out for that one once you've checked us out on this episode. Special edition. Special edition, exactly. We, we, we need to make the most of it. This only comes around once a year. Speaking of um, special editions, we have a, had um, a couple of special deliveries into the post bag. One of which, by the way, was asking for more jingles. So I do believe we have got a jingle for the post bag. Stop, whoa, yes, wait a minute, Mr. Postman. Wait, wait, yeah, 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 Mr. Postman. You'll know that we have regular contributors to the post bag. Last week we did demand request beckon further correspondence however our usual and our loyalist listener has got back in touch and that is of course arrogant ambassador he's obviously decided that he had a bit more to say on this episode than the last one because rather than tweet he's actually sent me an email so I'll, i'll read it out he must have known obviously he's listened right to the very end so he knew what we were discussing so he's put um dear revisiting the oscars i noted that your next episode will be on the year 2020 or as I call it, the beginning of the end. Okay, interesting start. Uh, by the way, I should say this is all in caps, which is an interesting <laughs> way of writing a, a, an email. But <laughs> As you are members of the mainstream media, you will not read this out. Well, Arrogant Ambassador, as you know, you get a mention almost every week and we are nothing but loyal to our listeners. So we are reading it out, but I'm quite pleased that you call us the mainstream media. But COVID-19 is a hoax. Okay, and this is a film podcast, Arrogant Ambassador, but, you know, maybe he's going to get to that. I will never be made to wear a mask unless I am at Comic-Con dressed as Mad Max or maybe Spider-Man. The the vaccine is actually full of Bill Gates' seam. No, no, I think think we're going to have to stop there, um, Arrogant Ambassador. He... He goes on to endorse Lawrence Fox for Mayor of London. He says that he only watches British films since Brexit. And um, I've got to say, Arrogant Ambassador, you don't spell Nazi with a T. I think I may have worked out who Arrogant Ambassador actually is. Is it Ian Brown? (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's certainly an Arrogant Ambassador for his one bloody record that he had out in the 80s. Yeah, resurrected himself. (laughs) Anyway, moving on to the top ten, well, top five. It's quite interesting given cinemas have pretty much been shut since March or restricted. So three of these films were actually released in 2019. Um, So that's number five, which was Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker. Shite. Yeah, Yeah, agreed. (laughs) I don't don't think you'd have seen it, would you? I've not seen it, no, but I'd tell you it's garbage. You don't need to see it to tell you that. Yeah, I thought it was absolute rubbish, uh, like pretty much all of the... The new ones. Number four, Jumanji, The New Level, sequel to 
the Jumanji remake. Not actually seen either of them, but they get quite decent reviews, actually. Oh, the first one I saw, that was all right. I quite like the remake. Yeah. Um, I, I can't remember if I've seen the, the follow-up. I think I might have. I don't think it was as good. But the, the, the remake was fine, yeah. which was surprising. I was, I was expecting to be absolute pish. Yeah, I, I quite like like that one in the 90s. It's probably bad, but it's one of those films that I enjoyed when I was like seven, so I'm always going <laughs> to kind of enjoy it, regardless of how good or bad it is. It's got um, The Rock in it. I mean, what's not to like? The Rock's um, a charisma packed machine so any film in it is he's in it's worth watching just for his eyebrow raises alone i, I could feel yeah. that you were about to say charisma vacuum there and then realized you were no, no. the opposite <laughs> i was actually what is the opposite of a vacuum i don't know can, can, can people write in and tell us <laughs> <laughs> number three was a 2020 release sonic the hedgehog what? i don't see that <laughs> no I, no, I, have I remember seen that. the I remember the trailer. It features Jim Carrey as Doctor yeah. Robotnik. Oh, was this the one that got absolutely slated for some reason around Doctor Robotnik or around, or was it the way Sonic looked? Oh. That was it. They had to scrap the way he looked. They gave I, Sonic human teeth. <laughs> I, the, the original trailer, folk folk went daft about the trailer and thought like he looked ridiculous, so they they went back and did lots of work to it to make him look like different, more hedgehoggy, <laughs> more hedgehoggy, yeah. Yeah. It was it was actually all right. It was a daft kids film, to be honest. Number two, 1917. So that's a film that we will discuss in more detail because it was nominated mm-hmm. 2019 Oscars. Must have just snuck into the list here. It felt like ages ago since I've seen that. <clears throat> yeah. And number one, Bad Boys for Life. <laughs> what? <laughs> really? The, the third film in... This is in America, of course. And this was pretty much the big release in February <laughs> before before the world went to shit. In my uh, hip-hop phase at university, I bought the soundtrack to Bad Boys 2. And let me just say, it's an absolute belter of a soundtrack. If you're, uh, if you're into your Puff Daddy and your Biggie Smalls and your uh, Jay-Z, it's a, it's a belter. Uh, it reminds me of my um, Dave the Rave, uh, which you mentioned those records, going through his final collection, which is... Um, Obscure might be the, the best word for it. And flicking through it, there's the Lion King theme tune. There's, I'm sure there's a Barry Manuel, Barry Manuel record, but then there's also a Jar Rule. What a weird collection. Nobody liked Jar Rule. No, he was like the, the uncool rapper. I can't actually think of any Jar Rule tunes. Yeah, that one with the shanty. Oh, the, what's love? No, uh, no that was Fat it. Joe. That was Fat Joe. You know, the if you'd have asked me this question in 2005, I would have been able to tell you his album names and uh, all these featured artists. But baggy jeans, chains, and backwards cap, Mason. Yeah, with my ma- magnetic earrings on. We'll, we'll get some photos of that on the stag. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be honest, rap died probably early 2000s. Yeah. There wasn't that much released last year, and I'm sure we'll end up discussing some of these films as we go through this, but was there any anything last year that you saw that was particularly good that hasn't really had much Oscar attention? Oh, what did I see last year? Well, actually, um, a couple of the films that were nominated for the BAFTAs that have got no look-ins for the Oscars. Rocks, which I think won Bucky Bakre, won the Rising Star Award. I thought that was excellent. Really enjoyed that. A bit similar to Nomadland in that it was a predominantly non-professional cast, set in a London storyline about a uh, mother who leaves her 
two young children and it's about how they get along and how they try to evade social services and what happens to them along the way. Really would recommend watching it. It's only about 90 minutes. It's on Netflix. Well worth your time, I'd say. Good stuff. Well, let's uh, let's get into the eight best picture nominees then. So we are going to start. We've decided in the order. Usually, as listeners will know, we usually finish with the winner. Now, that's obviously not possible today. So we are going in descending order of bookies odds. So don't hold us accountable if the film that we're going to talk about next doesn't actually, does end up winning the big prize. <laughs> we, we are not Oscar voters, I'm afraid to say. Just three guys with not yet. slightly dodgy be, opinions. Be. <laughs> <laughs> I will also say before we go into this, uh, for regular listeners, you will know that we talk spoilers on this podcast. We are going to try our best to not do that on this because we're conscious that a lot of people won't have had a chance to see these films yet. So what we will do is if we are going to go into what we would class as spoilers, we will mark it clearly. And yeah, we'll, we'll do that before we do it so you've got a chance to skip ahead or... When we say market clearly, listen for this noise. <laughs> that's uh, that says I'm going to say something that's going to ruin the film for you. So you need to skip ahead 15 seconds. Not the sound of the the sound of the bank across the road getting robbed. <laughs> so we're going to start then with the father. <laughs> what about you? What did you do for a living? Oh, I was a dancer. Were you? Yes. Dad. What? You're an engineer. What do you know about it? Yes, tap dancing was my specialty. Really? You seem surprised. Yeah, a little bit. Why, don't you believe me? Or you find that difficult to imagine? <laughs> of course, it's just, I've, I've always loved tap dancing. You really? Wow, I'm still great at it. I'll show you. <laughs> Aye! <laughs> Jolly good. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> Sorry. I know, I know who she reminds me of. Who? It's Lucy, Lucy, when she was younger. Lucy? Yeah, my other daughter. <laughs> That's right. There's a resemblance, don't you think? Yeah, maybe. Yes. <laughs> yes. Her unbearable habit of laughing inanely. So, for anyone that saw the title of this and thought it was a Star Wars prequel or spin-off, it's not. This is a film about one elderly man's experience of suffering from dementia, and by experience, I mean it attempts to provide a unique perspective on dementia, placing us in the mind of a man who is losing his. And that man is Anthony, played by Anthony Hopkins, and the film follows him around his flat as he tries to make sense of his surroundings and the people he interacts with on a daily basis. His daughter, Anne, played by Olivia Coleman, is a regular visitor and has been trying to get him to accept additional care for some time. Something as a stubborn old man he is unwilling to do. When I first became aware of this film, I was expecting what I would describe as a stately British prestige drama, the kind that the Oscars love. And The Father is that, but it's also quite experimental in how it uses cinema to depict the impact of dementia on a person. And it won't be the only film that we cover this year that follows experimental techniques to try and depict how an individual is suffering from an illness or a disability. I actually thought it was almost Kaufman-esque, if Charlie Kaufman is well-known enough to be classed as Kaufman-esque, and how it deconstructs the human mind. But I think that's something that I'd like to come on to and see if you two agree with me on that bit. It takes place almost entirely in one apartment, and you won't be surprised to learn it was created through the stage, through its limited setting and small cast, by director Florian Zeller, who has transitioned his own play from stage to screen. 
But unlike a couple of films we've covered, I think this does use some of the advantages of cinema to make the film as intimate as possible, almost claustrophobically so, with the use of close-ups effectively used to draw us into Anthony's headspace. Now, I must confess that I found the first part of this film a little hard going. I struggled to keep up with the rhythm, but it does become clearer over time that this is part of the point the film's trying to make, that the mind of a dementia sufferer does not work logically and the confusing elements are designed with a purpose. It could be quite a challenging watch as a result of this, as effective as it is, but the performances here are so, so good. Anthony Hopkins, he's had a fantastic career. He's already won Oscars and been nominated for other films in the past. This, for me, is him approaching career best material in the leading role. His portrayal is heartbreaking to watch, particularly in the final third when the movie starts to provide some answers to what he's actually going through and how the reality and the symptoms of his illness differ. And it's really hard not to hold back the tears as it heads towards the conclusion. I did like that the film didn't make him entirely sympathetic. He's often quite abrasive, grumpy and manipulative and it doesn't entirely explain this away as a result of dementia. But what it does do though is show how these behaviours or traits can be heightened by the frustration that comes with this disease and anyone who's had the misfortune of seeing a loved one go through similar will recognise aspects that the father covers. I'm just going to finish with one quote from the film that I think is a superbly written piece of dialogue and actually quite poetic where he describes what he's going through as I feel as if I'm losing all my leaves, the branches and the wind and the rain. I don't know what's happening anymore. And that's a a good summation of what the father is trying to do. Now the Oscars love well-acted British dramas and the father is another one to add to the collection. What did you two think of the movie Bingham? Yeah, I honestly thought it was brilliant, this. Really, I really liked the experimental approach. It's really, really like a massive experience, I guess. It was sharp, well written. Uh, I liked how the film sort of looped back and forward, switched between actors and actresses. All in all, makes you just feel like you're losing a sense of time and memory to put you in the place and effective, or, or give you a, a sense of what it's like to have dementia. I also quite liked how you learn little about Anthony to begin with. It just threw you straight into that situation and you picked up little hints from what he was saying but then as the film developed you were sort of having to second guess yourself and figure out what the hell was actually going on it was just like a big mad puzzle man oh, and it, it kept me engaged the full time I, I actually didn't find the first bit of it slow I was not not on the edge of my seat but I was fully invested in the thing the full way through and it wasn't, wasn't long like was it 90 minutes or so it, it could easily have been a standard weepy but despite it being really sad it, that that kind of puzzle element of it, I just found really refreshing and, and dead interesting. And at times, it's almost a horror because I mean, I've, I've had, my, my gran had dementia, and um, it was a horrible thing to see. But Christ, this film just put you in the place of what it's like to be an effect sort of losing your mind. So yeah, I, I honestly, I, I loved it. Powerful and really, really invested in the full thing. Yeah, it's it sounds like a quick clean sweep. I couldn't quite dis- tell if you were. Uh, as enthusiastic as uh, as I was going to be, Watson, about it. Because I thought this was superb. I think 15 years ago, this would have cleaned up at the Oscars. Back when the likes of the King's Speech was um, was winning, you know, best director, best film, best actor. If this was released 15 years ago, when you've got, you know, an 83-year-old Oscars darling, Anthony Hopkins giving such a powerful performance, national treasure, Olivia Colman, who's, you know, just recently won an Oscar, it's a clever, it's an intricate storyline. It does tick all the Oscar boxes. So I'm surprised that this is 
according to the book, is the least likely to win. Uh, 66 to 1 this was when I last looked. I can't, I can't believe that, honestly. I thought it was superb. Stick a quid on it. Uh, it honestly, it, it deserves it. Anthony Hopkins, you've discussed, but it felt to me as though he was pulling bits in from different roles that he's played. At times, and we heard in that clip, he goes from almost being reserved, pompous, like funny, intelligent, like maybe in you know, the remains of the day or 84 try and cross road or even last year with the two popes when he's, um, he's quite intelligent, but then he flicks to, um, almost like Hannibal Lecter. He's crafty, he's menacing. He can turn a room cold by, uh, just uttering one word. He's so good in this. Um, I was delighted that he won the BAFTA. You know, I suspect that another performance that's been adapted from a play will probably win best actor. Uh, for me, this is the best performance of the year. I think he's fantastic. That's not to say that the other actors, Olivia Coleman, we mentioned, who's in this, isn't. She's nominated as well. She's good, but honestly, you just can't compete with a powerhouse display as Anthony Hopkins puts in. I can't believe he's eighty-three years old. Some of the monologues he gives in this must have been pages and pages of dialogue. It's it's superb that he's still putting this in at, at eighty-three. You mentioned now sometimes this film's felt feels like a horror film. I thought that as well. You got slow burn twists. I like the repeated scenes that are almost, you know, elliptical in where it starts with one line and it finishes with the same line. The subtle set changes to a mess with your head. And, you know, the classical score is a bit creepy as well. I'm just trying to be so enthusiastic about this because I want people to watch it. I know it's not out in Britain until June, but when it is, when it does come out, you must watch it. I will say the only thing that um, I think lets it down is its poster. I don't know if you two have seen the poster for this film. But the poster's got Anthony Hopkins laughing away, sat on a, a, a nice cosy armchair with Olivia Coleman leaning in as though she's having a nice chat with him. That makes it look as though you could have this, watch this film with a cup of tea biscuit with your grandma. Honestly, it's, this film is a psychological mindfuck. You do not want to be watching this with your grandparents. <laughs> I did have a wee chuckle at the poster. It, uh, it, looks, like, it looks like a Weathers original Bowman advert TV advert. <laughs> <laughs> it really does. The, the only other thing I, I, I was I liked the point of Olivia Coleman who's good in it. She kind of winds me up though generally, and I'm I was almost part of me is like I hope she's not very good in this because I hate her she, when she goes up and she wins awards. She's like, oh no, not little old me again. Um, <laughs> why, why are you picking me? It's like, oh yeah, and you, you know you've been, been about for a wee while now, and you know multiple award winners so pipe down. She'll um, always be Sophie and peep show to me. Yeah, it doesn't well, matter how many awards she wins. Drunk rolling about a ball pool. The <laughs> <laughs> so the, the father as mason mentioned it's not actually out in the uk till june so june the 11th is when it's meant to be out the cinemas are meant to be back open then so there will be opportunities to see it in the cinema whether it gets a streaming release prior to that time will tell but as things stand cinema release june the 11th it's nominated for six oscars so best picture best actor for anthony hopkins Best Supporting Actress for Olivia Coleman, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Film Editing and Best Production Design. So we will find out soon how it does with those awards. Next up then we have Sound of Metal. Your hearing is deteriorating rapidly. We'll come back. Till then, Lou, we just keep going, okay? No. Lou. No. Let's play tomorrow. Let's see what it's like. Okay, I'm gonna be like a click track. You can play to me. You have to understand your first responsibility is to preserve the hearing you 
You understand me? I can't. I'm deaf. I'm deaf. Found a place. I think it's important that you stay here with us right now, Ruben. We're looking for a solution to, to this. Not this. So, for this one, let's just rip straight into the plot. So in Sound of Metal, you've got main character Ruben, who's played by Riz Ahmed, and he's an American drummer in a two-piece heavy metal band whose well-life is, is completely threatened, as is here and abruptly fails whilst on tour. And I know what you're thinking, that's not really ideal for a drummer in a band. Well, consider this, when your band is small, underground, it's a two-piece with yourself and a singer-guitarist Lou, played by Olivia Cook. She's not only your partner in the band, but she's your partner in life outside the band. Oh yeah, and you're a recovering heroin addict. And the only reason you're probably recovering is because of your relationship and the band. Uh, so it's a complicated situation and one which is just blown apart by Ruben's hearing loss. As an aside, actually, after hearing his band's music in the first part of the film, I was thinking to myself, maybe being deaf, I think <laughs> such a bad thing happened to put that fucking racket. <laughs> uh, and then uh, in the film <laughs> Ruben is often offered a place at a retreat for deaf addicts run by a guy called Joe who has you know one of those haircuts that my mum told me never to trust a man with a, a little ponytail played by Paul Racky um, he's like an experienced old head mentor who grew up with deaf parents and with American Sign Language as his, as his primary language I'm not going to bother mincing my words on this one I bloody loved it stylistically it has a really independent feel felt very true to life and I almost felt like I could have been watching a, a docudrama about real people and I think that was really driven by like the, the acting is like top grade in this and the direction's really good Riz Ahmed is, is sensational it's just a joy to watch a guy step up from being always been excellent to be honest and stuff that, that he's been in before to, to first class I love the way he portrayed highs and lows of his character's journey from sort of realisation to near acceptance and, you know, I actually had a bit of a taster of how frustrating it can be to, to almost lose your hearing because I, I bust my eardrum in a diving accident in the Philippines and I was pretty much deaf for a week in one ear. I couldn't make conversation with my missus or talk coherently and it was a bit scary to be fair. But I love how Riz in this film um, sort of conveys almost an inner rage at the situation and he shows real restraint as his character weighs up and tries to figure out a path. I also loved how the direction and the writing was superb. I think the plot avoids all the, the cliche trappings. You're almost thinking to yourself, I think it's going to pan out this way or this is going to happen and it kind of doesn't and it felt much more true to life. I also wanted to pick out just... Um, there is numerous scenes in this um, and I won't go into the specifics where they've just been done with such care. There's some heart-to-heart exchanges between the characters. You aren't spoon-fed answers, but it's a prime example of acting that is done best when words aren't needed and you get all you need to know from the expressions and of course you can't mention this film without talking about the sound it's almost similar in the respect to the father we just spoke about you're putting Ahmed's well Ahmed's character's place as everyday sounds like coffee dripping just disappearing or replaced by muffled sounds high-pitched whines and it's, it's quite disorientating at times and it, it is a really excellent film and I wasn't actually expecting all that much from it when I sort of read the synopsis but are we looking forward to or looking keeping an eye out for Darius Models on next film? Uh, what about you guys? We'll go with Wattie. Yeah, I think I think this is a good film. Probably not quite as enthusiastic as you are about it, but I did think it was really good. 
Riz Ahmed, as you say, is an actor that's been excellent in a lot of things for a number of years. I think virtually every review that I've written over the last five, six years of a film that he's in has called him underrated. I think that's about to change now, given he's been nominated for an Oscar for this. Look, I'm probably not going to add a huge amount to it. I think it's the sound design is the main thing about this that is really good. It really does put you into the character's headspace so you understand what Ruben's going through. I think it's also the way that he reacts to what he goes through is really relatable. So I think if I was in that position, I would probably do the same. You would go through that panic stage. You would then maybe figure out, oh, can I live with this? But then you would still be clinging on to the hope that there's a, a solution for you. And I think the film does that really well, and particularly in Ahmed's performance. He showcases that really well through the way that he goes through different ranges of emotions throughout it. It's such a, an interesting film that it's, it's came from nowhere almost, because you look at the people in it, I mean, like Paul Racy or, or Racky, who's the, the guy that runs the deaf school, reliably informed, he didn't have a Wikipedia page prior to appearing in this. He's now nominated for Best Supporting Actor. It's just very smartly done, really well crafted, really excellent leading performance. And a, a good story. I'd be, I'd be trying to find a criticism from nowhere. I just probably wasn't as engrossed in it as, as you were, Bingham. But I did really like it. Yeah, of all the films this year, this is the one that I most wish I could have seen in the cinema. Because it's a film where you need to be able to hear what Ruben, who is Riz Ahmed's character, hears. Uh, and I watched this when Shadeh is making dinner next door. And I don't think you really get the subtleties of at the anguish of someone losing their hearing when you can hear somebody boiling a kettle or frying onions next door. So it did lose a little bit for me with that. I think this is a cinematic film. And I'm not as enthusiastic as you two, perhaps on that basis. For me, this was three quarters of a good film. Uh, it loses its way, I think, when Ruben goes to Paris. And I found the ending to be quite abrupt. I was buying that Ruben's treatment of his deafness was starting to change in his mind. But it almost felt to me as though there was a 10 minute scene missing at the end. Because for me, the heart of this film is the scenes with Paul Racy's character and when Ruben's at the deaf retreat. I don't know if it's because I wanted to know more about the characters he meets there, the school teacher, the, the woman who he tattoos, the kids he mentors. I was less interested in Olivia Cook. I didn't care about her father. I wanted to know more about how Ruben was going to adapt and how those characters could help him with that. So towards the end, I felt it petered out a little bit. I fully agree with you on your comments about Riz Ahmed. He's sensational in this and he deserves bigger roles on the back of it. But yeah, good, not great for me, I think. Just on that, that point, and I feel that you might need to hook your little horn here, Mason. Oh, hang on. Let me get my horn ready. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Uh, bear with. <laughs> there we go. There we have it. Yes, oh shit, I said to press it twice. You've got to do two spoilers now. <laughs> <laughs> so I think on that point with the ending, it's interesting that you feel that way because I actually felt that was one of the stronger elements of the film. I understand where you're coming from and that the experiences when he's at the deaf school, I think you, you understand, I understand why you want to know more about that because this is a rare film that covers disability where it doesn't patronise the people that have that disability unlike a lot of Oscar films that, that cover disabilities over the years. But I think that ending, I think that's true to the character because even when he is trying to embrace that, he's still drawn back to his previous life. And I think what it brought out for me is that he's, he's in that environment, he's had his surgery or had the implant, but his hearing's still not perfect. He still doesn't fit in. He's realising that he's probably drifting apart from Lou a little bit because of who he is and maybe they would have drifted apart anyway. 
And I think that the very final scene, and if you've mm. listened to this bit and not, and not tuned out and not seen the film, then it's on you. <laughs> the, the very final scene where he just takes him out and then just yep. sits in silence, I think that's really a powerful ending. I, I actually felt it was probably a little bit before that that I wasn't as invested in and it drew me back in at the end. Well, I, I thought the end was great. I thought it was a brilliant scene. I, I think they should make an award of, of best scene. That, that should be an Oscars award. I think we spoke about that in the last podcast, and this would certainly be nominated. don't know whether it would win it. I've got a couple in mind, but it was a really good scene. I just thought it was a, a perfect way of ending it, and I, I was expecting it to... There was loads of different things could have happened that I'd have been like, oh, fuck's sake, like, I could have written that. Whereas that, I thought it was quite a nice way of nice way of ending it. I think it's one of those films that, if it had ended maybe the way that you're saying you would have liked it to Mason, I think that would have also felt true to the way that the film had played it out, which oh. is testament to the work that it put in on the characters, particularly on, on Ruben. But I, I did, on a lighter note, want to just ask one thing. So they bring up a very pertinent point at the beginning of the film, they're listening to some music and they're listening to Meatloaf. What wouldn't? Yeah. Has anyone ever got to the bottom of what would he do? Oh, right, honestly. I, I thought this when I was watching that scene. He says in the song what he won't do. The woman joins the cut. She the woman joins the song, and she she gives a lot of things. And then he's like, and then he says, "I won't do that." But, but what is it? I, I don't think I've ever picked it up. It's maybe because of her, the way she's singing. I need it. to listen to her bit. So, so basically, um, you reckon she says it, but you don't know yourself. She she asks for a lot of things. Then he's like, "Actually, though, it's not that." <laughs> I think it's better just being able to pretend what would meet love not do. <laughs> just think about it in uh, your head. Last thing on that film, the name of his band, Blackgammon. I mean, lads, that is a terrible name for a band. <laughs> but it's a perfect name for a shitty metal band. <laughs> Blackgammon. I don't, I don't think we were going to end up like a whiplash too when um, those start those beginning scenes. Um, but yeah, it's a crap name and the music was garbage. I did. The other thing I was going to say, Riz Ahmed, he might want to keep his hair like that because after he shaves it off, he's fucking. He looks. Puts about ten years on himself. Yeah, he looks he looks cool with the blonde hair. I agree. Kerry actually said at the beginning of it, she was like, "Wow, he's he's looking hot because <laughs> he's he's like bulked up and he's he's got his like tips in the hair." Usually played like weedy characters. I think like Nightcrawler's probably the, the film that I like yeah. him in most, and he's he's very different then. In any case, you can actually watch this now if you have Amazon Prime in the UK. It was released, I say yesterday, depends when we release this, it was released on Monday the 12th of April. So if you've got Amazon Prime, get it or just get one of those free trials that they offer you and check it out. It was also nominated for six Oscars, Best Picture, Best Actor for Ahmed, Best Supporting Actor for Racy, Best Original Screenplay, Best Film Editing and obviously Best Sound. It's got to win that one, the last one. I mean... I usually see those sound awards and, I mean, for someone that watches a lot of films, it's pretty hard for me to know what's classed as good sound or bad sound in, in most films. It just goes under the radar, but in this, absolutely. I think you'll get very short odds on that. Okay then, so our third film of the episode then is David Fincher's Mank. Mank? It's Orson Welles. Of course it is. I think it's time we talk. What is it the writer says? Tell the story you know. Hello, everyone. Make yourself to home, Mr. Mankowitz, or shall I call you Herman? Please, call me Mank. 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 This is Herman Mankowitz, but we're to call him Mank. Mankowitz. 
Herman Mankiewicz, New York playwright and drama critic, turned humble screenwriter, Mr. Hearst. This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies. So I mentioned regarding Sound of Metal, how I felt that it suffered from not being seen in a cinema. Well, this is a film I actually did see in an actual cinema back in the uh, five minutes that Dublin opened its uh, doors for. So, you know, a bit of a, uh, maybe the, the only film of 2020 that I actually saw live. But yeah, Mank was the front runner for the Oscars for quite a while. Uh, and I fancy that had this ceremony been when it usually is and had this been a normal year, it might have had a better chance, especially as it has um, 10 nominations, I think. It's prime Oscar bait. It's a film about a film. In this case, that film is Citizen Kane, which is, you know, arguably the pinnacle of filmmaking. Certainly uh, top of those lists of greatest films of all time. Uh, the film's shot in monochrome. It features Gary Oldman, who's a recent Best Actor winner. It's directed by David Fincher of, you know, classic films, Fight Club 7, Social Network. It's got some significant pedigree, this film. The plot of it, and that clip maybe didn't necessarily tell you exactly what it was about. Maybe introduce you to Mank who is uh, Herman Mankiewicz, who early in the film is commissioned by Orson Welles, who we did here, uh, to write the script for what will become Citizen Kane. And as the script has been dictated in bed by a bed-bound Herman, Herman Mankiewicz, uh, we then flash back to the inspiration for the scenes he's writing, and in particular, Mank meeting the businessman William Randolph Hearst, who is famously the basis for, for Kane. Uh, the film subsequently follows this trend. We go back and forth between Mank and the president writing the script and being visited by various characters, his wife, his brother, his producer, Welt himself. And we go back to Mank's meeting with Hurst and um, Marion, played by Amanda Seyfried. Marion being an actress in the golden era of Hollywood. Now, I would say this is a very handsome film. The cinematography is fantastic. Every scene is beautifully crafted, as we've come to expect from Fincher. It's put together beautifully as well. I'm thinking in particular of the dinner scene at Hearst Castle. There's a stroll that Mank goes on where we follow him through the gardens of Hearst Castle with Amanda Seyfried's Marion. There's also the scene where the first, those two first meet on a you know, grand sweeping location. And this film is the kind of film that's got a lot of, I would say, Easter eggs for uh, film fans. But that, to me, was its biggest downfall. I think technically this is a great film, but it did feel as though it was kind of written with a bit of a wink and a nudge, knowing that it's going to be poured over by film nerds, studied at filmmaking schools. So while I would say that I very much admired this film, and it was, for me, a great welcome back to going to the cinema, uh, I don't think I was swept up by it. And uh, I might even say that your casual film viewer might say it's a little bit boring. Watson, thoughts? Yeah, I think you're probably right in terms of your average film viewer might not take to this one. But I am quite pretentious and I like wanky films about old Hollywood and this was right <laughs> up my street. <laughs> so I did really like this. I, I mean, my kind of full disclosure is David Fincher is up there with my favourite directors. I think he's made some fantastic films, quite varied films actually. This is based on a script that his dad wrote actually, his late dad, a number of years ago. And it's about Citizen Kane, which, as you say, is seen as the pinnacle of Hollywood filmmaking, although that's not a film that I actually have taken that much out of on the one occasion I've seen it. I just love everything about the way it's put together. It's the nostalgic nods, the style of the cinematography, old-fashioned score. And, as I say, for a lover of old Hollywood, this scratched that itch in the same way as Ellie Confidential did 
for 1950s LA in that time period. It's definitely a bit of a niche film. It was always going to be nominated for Oscars because of the content. Yeah, It's a film about filmmaking. I accept that it's probably going to be a film that a lot of people will maybe not take as much out of. I will just add one other thing that's in a kind of serious note. I, I really like Charles Dance in it. I think he's great as Hearst. He's only in like three or four scenes. If you want a Machiavellian bastard with a British accent, I think he's probably joined Jeremy Irons at the top of the list now. Yep. <laughs> um, and then I'll, I'll finish with a question, which we can maybe come back to after Bingham, you've given your views. But I mentioned that um, I'm not, I've not been a big fan of Citizen Kane at the time of seeing it. So I actually would say I probably enjoyed Mank more based on one view of each. Any other films that are about the making of a film that are better than the actual film themselves? So I'm going to give two examples from my perspective. Mason, you will definitely disagree with one, which is Saving Mr. Banks. I much prefer that to Mary Poppins. And The Disaster Artist, which is clearly a better film than The Room, but The Room itself is pretty funny at the same time. Anyway, what did you think about Mank, Bingham? I knew you were going to react like that. I've just learned that I'm a casual film watcher and I don't uh, get to chin and watch these things. No, you're not casual. I'm just saying I'm pretentious. (laughs) (laughs) I left left this one to last because I read the synopsis and I was like, who cares? I know that's sacrilege to film buffs, but I just found it boring. I also think that there must have been a more interesting part of the... Because the writing to Citizen Kane is, is a real famous thing about how it was all put together. And I feel like he's picked the least interesting part. We just focus on a one-dimensional, self-destructive mank. And it largely casts any depth. I wanted to know more about Hearst. And like you said, the, the, the it was a very good performance. And I wanted to see more of him. I wanted to learn more about his relationship with Marion Davis because that wasn't really, didn't really go into any real depth. And I almost felt like, oh, I'm an idiot, because when I was watching it, I was losing place of what character was who, and was I supposed to know who these people were, because I'm supposed to know about the writing of Citizen Kane. So I did a little dig in anyway, because I had some views on it, and I learned this film is incredibly hypocritical. So there's a fake news theme running through it, which... Yeah, I picked it up. I'm not quite that stupid. But this film is also based on an essay called Raising Cain by Pauline Call, um, which has pretty much been debunked a long time ago and is used as Hollywood propaganda basically to smear Orson Welles. So, hypocritical film. And I'll also add, this is a dagger to its heart, it's a movie about screenwriting, yet its own screenplay is terrible in my opinion. I just found a jumbled mess. Too many fleeting visits with 1930s politics I couldn't give a shit about. Yeah, that that the the politics bit. I I think you needed to have an, an idea as to who those politicians were and why you were supposed to yeah. like one and not like the other. And I didn't really get that. Yeah, I, I don't know. My my one question for you, Mason Gary Oldman was he hamming it up? You hate folk at ham it up. Oh, massively. Oh, big time. <laughs> I, he was I, he was having an absolute ball in that. I thought he was pish. I honestly, I didn't like. I, I didn't like him, and he's been nominated. <laughs> I think he's excellent in it. I think he is playing the character in a certain way, but I think it really works for the film and the type of person he's portraying. It's a better performance than the one that he won an Oscar for a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He, he reminded me of like the drunk guy of the fast show. You know, the old guy like <laughs> in the seat that's like, like big marshmallow. <laughs> you know that guy? <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. I'd love to see him play a bank of it. Yeah, he also looked, and I, I know I'm the bit of the lookalike champion in this pod. 
Um, so I, there's no way, Mason, you'll know what I'm talking about. What I'm going to have to go with someone else that will know Scottish shit. So there's a Scottish TV series from about a sketch show from maybe early 2000s, maybe even earlier than that. It had the guy that played Rab C. Nisbet. Uh, so it's called The Baldy Man. And he, he <laughs> just, just shaking your head at the Mason. He, he, no idea. When he's lying in that bed, he looks exactly like The Baldy Man. Google him now. Looks like him. I think you need to be a bit more specific than just typing in the baldy man to Google. No, I can't, well, <laughs> just bring up random the, baldy. It's, what's what's his name? Gregory. Gregor Fisher. Gregor Fisher. That that can't have been good. I thought you were going to say chewing the fat. <laughs> he just comes up with pictures of him in Radcliffe's bed. <laughs> it's quite funny. I'm going to watch the baldy man now and finish this. It looks quite good. Yeah, there we go. Well, we've got a recommendation out of this. On my question about films about films, put you both in the spot. Any any thoughts? You have a little bit. I will say that as much as I disagree about Saving Mr. Banks being better than Mary Poppins, they're both great. Both five stars for me. I love both those films. So even though it's not quite as good as Mary Poppins, it's still a cracking film. I, I can't think of any off the top of my head. In fact, we should throw this one to the listeners. We'll, we'll ask for some. We'll, that post bag will be bulging next week. It'll be bulging, yeah. We'll have a... There we yeah, go. So films about films that are better than the film that they're portraying. Is that what we're saying? Yeah. Or the art. Okay. <laughs> Good. Whatever you or want the to art. <laughs> So yeah, so you mentioned that Mank had 10 Oscar nominations. That is the most nominated film of the year. So Best Picture, Director, Best Actor for Oldman, Best Supporting Actress for Amanda Seyfried, Best Original Score, Best Sound, Best Cinematography, Best Production Design, Best Costume Design, and Best Makeup and Hairstyling. And if you do want to watch it, it's available on Netflix now. That is Mank. Now, film number four, an altogether different film. I just realised, actually, that the first four films that we're covering all have Best Actor nominees in it. There you go. Fun fact oh, for Almost you as if we planned it. Almost as if it was planned. And that film is Minari. What a wonderful day to be in the house of the Lord. If you're here with us for the first time, please stand. What a beautiful family. Glad you're here. How's your daddy like that new farm? He growing things good, doing things right. Yes. I don't like grandma. Grandma smells like Korea. Yeah. Grandma smell? So I've got him met when I saw Minari on the nomination list. My natural cynicism was was oh here we go. The Oscars have just wedged in an almost foreign film after the success of Parasite. I say almost foreign because the dialogue is mostly in Korean. The film is shot in America by an American-Korean filmmaker and features an American dream. But before we get to whether my cynicism was well-placed, it's best to cover what it's about. So it follows the story of a Korean-American family. They're relocating to rural Arkansas in the 1980s to follow the, the sort of father of the family, Jacob. And he's got an ambitious American dream to grow a vast farm of Asian crops. He sees this as an escape from a life of chicken sexing. We're adding that to the list of shit jobs and films that we've been track <laughs> of from previous podcasts. 
uh, and his wife is way more sceptical, particularly because she sees the dream involves living in a manky mobile home. So you've got kind of fraught relationships, made even more fraught by health issues of the son and the fact that they live with the mother-in-law. And by the way, she steals a lot of the scenes that she's in. So was I right to be cynical as fuck as usual? Was I heck? Honestly, this is a brilliant movie. I absolutely loved it. It's not usually, the, not quite the type of film I usually like, but it was, it was like quietly beautiful. Every shot oozed like a kind of tenderness and there's a real sense of reality. And I think it's quite easy a lot of the time to dismiss a feel-good film. I usually hate feel-good films, but there's a real gritty edge to the story and the characters. I love a good struggle in a film and it helped keep the film grounded and, and hooked me right in. And there was a real feel of authenticity between how the family struggled with different things like money, chasing their dreams, adapting to a new place. I also would say that, you know, it probably doesn't sound very groundbreaking when I describe it, but there's just a real warmth to the film. There's loads of good comedy in it. The, the grandma is, is genuinely funny. I thought it was going to be the usual jokes my mum and dad would laugh at, but I mean, how can an old grandma telling his kid or telling the young kid his penis is broken after he pishes the bed not be funny I'm also going to mention Emil Massari's score which combined like terrific cinematography it's just like sort of piano you had a bit of it in that clip there synthesised soundscape which I could just sit with my eyes closed and like listen to that it was beautiful I was just sucked into this film thinking about everything at the end of it so I guess I'm, I'm going to, like, you, I don't even need to say I loved it again because I've reiterated it numerous times, but what were you, Mason? Ah, oh, man, I love this film. It's funny, it's thrilling, it's got an emotional punch, it's heartwarming, it's not a usual Scott Bingham film, so it's got to be good for you to have liked it. Uh, I, I found myself, yeah, I honestly, relaxing into this film. I felt like I was part of the family watching it, or at least that I wanted to be, certainly by the end. Now, there isn't, there isn't an Oscar for... Um, best collective performance or best cast but if there was i would say this one should win everybody who's in it plays the part to absolute perfection obviously you've got Stephen yun and yun yo jung who've been nominated individually you've got alan kim who's a little boy who's had a few plaudits as well but i also loved han ye ri as monica who's um the wife she's got one of the less showy roles She's unfulfilled, which is a tricky part to play because she's in fewer scenes. But to me, the ones that she is in, it told me a lot about her character, her frustration with the relationship, lack of affection, dissatisfaction with the Han life's delta. She's homesick for Korea. She feels guilty for the health of her son. I felt like there's a whole movie just in the six or seven scenes that she's in. Similarly as well, Will Patton, who... I had to, all the way I was watching this, I don't know if you just thought this, I was thinking, where do I know him from? It's Armageddon. That's where I know him from. Will Patton's Paul, <laughs> who's the guy from Armageddon. You think at the start he's just going to be the comic relief, but then he had to be a part as well. He also said, this is way funnier than, than I expected as well. And I always feel a bit wanky when I'm laughing along to a subtitled film. Because like, oh, I've re- just read that joke and it's so funny. But honestly, Broken Ding Dong, is, there's, not, there's nothing funnier than a Korean, an old Korean lady saying Broken Ding Dong. So, oh, it's, it's such a good film, this. And uh, people who don't usually watch films not in the English language, pop this on because it's it's an absolute riot. Yeah, make that free. I think it, you've covered most of the main points. I, I think it's just really quite beautiful and understated, actually. It's a film about the American dream, but it's seen through the perspective of characters that we don't often see and, and their goals are quite modest. They just want to make a living and have a good life for their family. It's not about becoming super rich or anything particularly drastic and it's just really 
you really root for the family just watching them throughout the film. That's the, the main thing. I think you, you touched on the score. It's a fantastic score. You could happily just shut your eyes and just listen to it. Uh, the grandma and the relationship that she develops with the little boy, it's really funny. It's very funny. And I think I would say to anybody who wouldn't normally watch a subtitled film, I mean, you really are missing out because some of the the foreign language films over the past few years in particular have been have been truly excellent and Minari is is another one to add to the list. A little bit of interesting trivia that thought so you mentioned Will Patton who plays Paul. So in test screenings for the film, he was actually in it quite a bit more, but audiences that watched the test screenings thought that he seemed menacing and that he was going to kill the family. So <laughs> they, they had to they had to cut a lot of his scenes. So any scenes where he appeared a little bit menacing had to be cut out. So that might explain why he's kind of just drifts in and out and he's this odd character, but I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah. I was interested to see Brad Pitt as one of the producers. Brad Pitt uh, produces a, a lot of films, actually. Yeah, he does, yeah. you, you see his name on more things than you'd think. So I don't know if it's his production company and whether he has much to do with it, but it, to be fair, he does seem to champion quite a lot of smaller mm-hmm. independent films. It's a fair play to him. I, I would also, the other point I was going to make on this was uh, about chicken section because. I, I was just like, what is this? Is this made up? I was Googling it. Also, so weird shit comes up. Um, but I found it's actually quite a well-paid job. So I can't remember whether it's 40 grand a year a chicken sexer earns or whether it's $40,000. But I thought that was ridiculous because there's a real, uh, it's a talent, apparently, being able to look up a chicken's anus and figure out whether it's a boy or a lassie. Yeah, I was going to say, we should say that chicken sexing isn't shagging chickens. <laughs> <laughs> It's working. It's working out whether it's a boy chicken or a girl chicken. Yeah, that would be an altogether different film. <laughs> oh I want to say as well about um, Lee Isaac Chung, who's the director. His next film, because I was, you know, interested in more of his work because this is so good. His next film is going to be a live action version of the anime anime film Your Name, which and you know I'm not really a big anime guy, but Your Name for me is the best one I've seen. Watson, you've uh, you've been to Japan. You're an anime guy. Yeah. Is your name? Is your name. It, is your name's be? fantastic. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm not sure I would say it's the best. I think there's there's a couple of the Ghibli ones that I would have higher than it, but it is fantastic film. Some of the the best animation clearly comes out of that part of the world. Yeah. So Minari then clean sweep. We're doing well so far. It's been a pretty strong year. It's six nominations for this as well. I think that's, that seems to be the magic number. That's three films that are on six. This was nominated for Best Picture, also got a Best Director nod, Best Actor for Stephen Yun, Best Supporting Actress for Yu Jung, Best Original Screenplay and Best Original Score. And if you want to watch Minari, in the UK at least, it's not available anywhere streaming for free, but you can purchase it on a range of streaming options for around about £9.99. Curzon Home Cinema is probably the, the best of the independent ones. It is on Amazon, but we won't push you there. Or if uh, you're Scottish-based, you can buy it off Filmhouse Player. Um, the Edinburgh Filmhouse has now got its own streaming service, so a good way to support local cinemas when they are closed at the moment. Okay, that's us halfway through this episode. Uh, next up, we've got Judas and the Black Messiah. What are you doing? That's private. Private. You think you're gonna be a bad mother? It was a question. Why you gotta ask yourself that? I don't. I don't know. Maybe the fact that I'm bringing a child into a war zone. These aren't considerations you have to make. You get to go out there and talk about dying a revolutionary death and how 
your your body belonged to the revolution because you don't have another person growing inside your body. So you regret it? What? I have my baby. Do you? Judas and the Black Messiah is a film about Fred Hampton, who was the chairman of the Black Panther Party in Chicago, from his perspective and from the perspective of the man who would go on to betray him to the FBI. It's a tense cat-and-mouth thriller with dual viewpoints, one of which is Hampton, played by Daniel Kaluuya, and the other is William O'Neill, played by Lakeith Stanfield. As part of this, it also explores the role of the FBI in disrupting the activities of civil rights groups with often tragic consequences that no one paid the price for. So the film takes place in the late 1960s and it shows how petty criminal O'Neill was recruited by the FBI to infiltrate the Black Panther Party and specifically the chapter that was ran by Fred Hampton. And it looks at how he grappled with his conscience, at what he was being asked to do, um, betraying his people whilst also tried to keep himself out of jail. I felt it had shades of a film from about 15 years ago called The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford and that it's a tragic tale with a weight lended to it by the way that it's played out by the two main performers who are Kaluuya and Stanfield. Curiously, both men have been nominated for Best Supporting Actor despite both essentially being leads. Kaluuya's the one that's been winning the awards and he is very good. I think Stanfield gives the better performance, in my opinion, in what it says the more challenging role. He has to portray a coward who has to maintain a facade to keep his cover, and I felt this film was at its best when it got inside O'Neill's head and allowed the internal conflict to play out. I'm a bit lukewarm in this film overall, to be honest. I do like thrillers. This is a film that is and should be right up my street, so I did enjoy it. But I think it's Yeah, I think this is one of the weakest films nominated this year, to be honest, and I think any time that we move away from the central premise, the film suffers a bit. The FBI scenes in particular are really bad. I get that the director, Shaka Khan, clearly has little time for the authorities and their actions, but at least a little attempt to add some balance or nuance wouldn't have gone amiss, instead of writing them as cartoon villains. So I think this is is a good thriller, a couple of borderline great central performances, and I did enjoy it, but for me... There's been plenty of better thrillers in the past few years that haven't had awards attention. Do you agree, Richard Mason? So you remember uh, last month when we watched uh, Avatar, which was about uh, a mole being sent undercover to infiltrate an organisation whose beliefs he ended up getting on board with and then felt guilty about being the infiltrator. Well, that's, uh, funnily enough, also Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, <laughs> and many other films. But yeah, this is the latest version of that classic story. However, I'm doing it down there because this is a classic example, I think, of a film which could have quite easily have been bang average, being lifted up by its performances. Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield are both brilliant, as is Dominic Fishback, who we heard in that clip. I think Daniel Kaluuya is just the best young actor out there at the minute. Uh, I honestly would watch him in anything. He's on a cracking run. He's been in the last few films. He's been Get Out, Black Panther, Widows, Queen and Slim, and then this. He's on a run of five hits there, all cracking performances. And in this film in particular, he's so charismatic and magnetic. Every scene he's in, I wanted to stay with him for longer. And for me, he's deserving of being given the nod for Best Supporting Actor, even though I would probably agree that he's not so much a supporting role in this. Lakeith Stanfield is also excellent. Um, Shout out, by the way, to his ability to do a good guilty look. I don't know how he wasn't found out when he spends practically all this film looking as though he's just stolen some biscuits from the tin when he's having his tea made by his mum. He is... (laughs) 
just five seconds in his presence and surely he could have rumbled in, but obviously that wouldn't have worked. And I guess it is a true story, so maybe they just hammed up the guilt. But yeah, I, I did enjoy this film. I found the performances to be powerful. I really believed in the portrayal. I was tense at moments. I found it interesting as well that this film is effectively happening at the same time as another film that we'll discuss, The Trials of Chicago 7. Bobby Seale gets a mention in this, and he's in Chicago 7. Fred Hampton is in both films. So yeah, I found that interesting. I was interested in the uh, character of Fred Hampton, and I thought Daniel Kaluuya was brilliant. It's worth watching it, I think, just for him. Yeah, I'm going to start off with my sync comment, which is <laughs> the, the classic... I always feel bad when you, how bad does it make you feel when you watch the story of Fred Hampton and you realise his speeches and that and the kid's only 20, I was only 21. Oh, yeah. I was assassinated. Like, what the fuck have I been doing in my life? Like, sitting, working in an office and this guy's like many years younger than me, an absolute boss in these big performances, big political ideals. I was, lukewarm was probably my sort of feeling on this. I do agree on Daniel Kaluuya. He's brilliant. I wanted um, Fred Hampton to be in more scenes. I wanted to be more of a biopic and I wanted to just to learn more about him and, of course, have um, Kaluuya on screen because he dominates every single scene he's in. And I almost felt like I didn't learn so much about that character. Yeah, he can do great speeches. I I just wanted to know a wee bit more. Like he stands for you, you picked up on my same bit, Mason, about... I had I wrote down exactly the same thing. I, I get a bit bored of watching undercover agents look so fucking shifty. Like, like the, he's almost doing, like, the, the wee sneaky eyes you get at Scooby-Doo when you're trying to guess the villain. And you're like, you, you must... Someone must notice that. I, I clearly don't do that. You clearly don't do that in real life, but, I, you know, sweat's absolute pissing off him and no one's thinks to say, what's... <laughs> We were trying to find us a mole when uncovered. It couldn't be you, could it? <laughs> and then he's like totally overplaying the aggression about go uh, in, in various parts of the film when he wants to have uh, or implore violence on the FBI. I just felt the, the overall film it misses something. Is it a thriller? I, I kind of erred on the side of boredom. It wasn't as interesting as Black Klansman from a few years ago. I think that was better, and we'll get to that at, at some point. I also do think that the screenplay wasn't very good. It was really slow in setting up the component parts, and I don't know whether they tried to fit too much in. Because there's a storyline in the middle. This Jimmy Palmer character that just appears, and neither I wasn't paying enough attention, but I was trying to figure out who that, who the hell he even was. Uh, and then there's a little sort of thread of a storyline that continues through the film after that, and I, it was almost unnecessary. So, yeah, it was, it was all right. Didn't blow me away. Same as me, I guess, then. It has five nominations, so Best Picture, the two Best Supporting Actor nominations for... Well, no, it's got six, actually. Two Best Supporting Actors for Kalua and Stanfield. I've counted that as one. It was nominated for the screenplay, which I, I can kind of share your thoughts on that. I, I didn't think it was one of the stronger ones of the year, to be honest. Best Cinematography and Best Original Song for... Fight For You by her, Dernst, Emil II and Tierra Thomas. And this is, as I've said before, one of those things that does my nothing. It's just a song that plays over the end credits. Like, out of the, the five films, five songs nominated this year, four of them are just nonsense played over the end credits. You could put anything over the, the end credits. So on that basis, the song from the Eurovision film deserves to win because it's actually part of the film. So there you go. <laughs> To be honest, I can't remember the song on this one. I might have, uh, to be honest, I think when that's because you probably turned it off when the credits came. I turned that. Oh no, the the song. It's quite good. The song on this because I was uh, chatting to Sinead after it finished, and I had the song on in the background. It's decent. Get it on. It's a decent song. Yes, it's no working girl. 
Okay then, right. Film number six. Promising young women. I just thought that you were drunk? Yeah. Really drunk? Fuck. Yeah. Well, I'm not. But that's good, isn't it? I think you should leave. Oh. Now you want me to leave? No. I just I'm really high. Like I'm really fucking high right now. I don't know what I'm doing. I think you should go. But a second ago, you were determined for me to stay. You were pretty insistent, actually. I'm a nice guy. Are you? I thought we had a connection, I guess. A connection? Okay. What do I do for a living? Sorry, maybe that one's too hard. How old am I? How long have I lived in the city? What are my hobbies? What's my name? Oh, McLovin. Have a word with yourself, mate. <laughs> what has become of you? Right, so I'm going to say that this is perhaps the most polarising film on the list this year. Maybe that's just because I read The Guardian and they've written many an opinion piece on it. I've seen articles calling it a feminist takedown of rape culture and double standards. I've also read others that have said it's a cop-out that becomes a by-the-numbers revenge thriller. And I'll give my opinion on that, but let's have a look at, a look at the plot first. Kerry Mulligan plays Cassie, who, as we heard in the clip, acts drunk in nightclubs in order to entrap men who take her home thinking of her as an easy target who they can take advantage of. And the film follows Cassie as she turns the tables on those men when she ends up getting back to their place and she, as we heard, reveals herself to be sober, teaching them a valuable life lesson. We aren't initially told why she does this. The director, Emerald Fennell, drip-feeds us Cassie's backstory, not, I would say, through flashbacks to their credit, but through scenes with other people from Cassie's past, such as her old classmate, played by Alison Brie, uh, her friend Nina's mother, uh, Alfred Molina's lawyer, and a new love interest, Ryan, who's played by Bo Burnham. She vaguely knew him at college, and the relationship progresses as the film goes on. Cassie begins to take her revenge the next step, and she concocts a plan in order to avenge her friend Nina's unfortunate death. So firstly, I've been a bit harsh on it at the start. I did like this film. Uh, I bought into Cassie's motives, uh, I felt happy for her when she meets Ryan. I enjoyed the kind of film within a film, half long, half hour long rom-com that the uh, movie does briefly turn into. And then when the twist comes, hang on, hang on. Let me get my alarm out. There's, there's a twist, lads. Uh, I did actually feel sick after the twist. Uh, and then later in the film, when there's another incident, I was shocked. I was genuinely angry. So this film brings out a lot of emotion in you. There's also black comedy. We heard that in the clip there. It's sinister, but it's funny as well. Bo Burnham, who plays the love interest, he's a stand-up comedian in real life, and you can tell that, I think. I really didn't want him to turn out to be a dick, and then does he, doesn't he? I'll let you watch it and find out. I also like that this is a film that makes you think about it after watching. It's definitely a film tailor-made for having a chat about the bar after you've seen it, perhaps. It's a film that makes you maybe reassess your own actions. Because, well, you know, I'm guessing that this is a film aimed at millennial women rather than three straight blokes in the 30s. 
you know, we've all been in nightclubs where there's been a drunk woman who's been treated as Cassie is. We've all watched films growing up, such as Road Trip or American Pie, where that kind of behaviour is promoted into teenage boys. So, you know, it's not an easy watch. It's certainly thought-provoking. It's interesting that it has to be almost packaged up as a black comedy in order to get it into the mainstream. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting film. I did enjoy it, but it's not what you might expect. The last thing I wanted to say before I pass it over is that uh, if you like pop music... This film has got a killer soundtrack, including, I would say, an excellent reworking of Britney Spears' Toxic, which uh, gives it the same vibe as Jordan Fields' Austed for uh, I Got Five on it. Uh, it's also got a very rare appearance for uh, Paris Hilton's music career. And I am curious to know if, uh, Bingham, you're a uh, Stars Are Blind fan. <laughs> uh, it's a no. good pop song. Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I can't say I've been following the career of Paris Hilton. She's pretending that she's a DJ or whatever she's doing. Uh, this one, I think it's quite an ambitious film. I think it's really inventive and it was quite a bold take on female rape revenge, if you like. And I think I was probably more positive than, than you are, given your, your sort of guardian cynical eye. I sort of just put that aside. I think it feels like a proper roller coaster to me and I love a bit of a risk taker in Emerald Fennell in terms of the plot and the direction because... I think there is a criticism that the film, putting the story aside, there's a criticism that it's all over the shop a little bit in tone. You can't really decide whether it's a fantasy, is it a dark comedy, is it harsh reality? But I was sort of fine with that. I just found it a whole load of fun. Uh, Kerry Mulligan, who I spoke up or sang the praises of for our performance in The Education, she is absolutely brilliant in this. I kind of step back from it and think Cassie is a really tough part to play. Because there's a real balancing act between being a traumatised victim who's got the audacity to fight against the system, I suppose, but also to show a level of vulnerability eventually. And I think it's also very good to see her in a different role because she has been so great. Has she been typecast? Well, until now, maybe. And I also did like her chemistry with Bo Burnham, who I also thought was very good. I do think there is a flaw in the story right enough. I don't think this requires a spoiler. It does go down a wee bit too much of the like boys will be boys angle, and every guy is basically just labelled a dick, which is a wee bit just a, like one dimensional. But I really enjoyed it. I came away from it thinking that was a really sharply written film, it has its flaws, but you know, fair play is a, ris- a risky, a risky take from Fennell. Ambitious is a good word for it. I quite like a film that defies being pigeonholed into a specific genre or a box, and I think this film does it quite well. It keeps you on your toes. It unfolds in quite often surprising ways. You've mentioned that there's twists and turns. It's got a really, really great central performance. This is arguably as good as Kerry Mulligan's been since in education, actually, which Uh we we clearly talked about in the last episode. It doesn't matter how many times I see or hear that clip that we've played at the beginning. I think it's absolutely brilliant. (laughs) It's uh, it's just great. I'm not sure I necessarily got that vibe from you, Bingham, about the, I guess, blaming all men thing. Maybe that's not what you were getting at, but... I suppose it's just portraying that Cassie as a character is someone who is prone to think that way about people because of, of how she's experienced life to that point. And mm-hmm. obviously there's a big event that is, is revealed at one point. Before I ask for the spoiler and again, there's one other thing that I'd wanted to say about it, which is that I really liked how they cast the male parts in it. So I watch a lot of American TV and quite a lot of the male actors in it 
are people who've been typecast a little bit as playing nice guys in American TV shows. So they play the kind of like goofy guys and comedies and stuff. And I think it worked really well casting them as the not so nice guys. And I think there's a subtle point there that actually, well, it's not necessarily those that are obviously bad guys that are kind of doing stuff that they shouldn't be doing. I thought that was, whether it was by intention or not, and I'm sure it must have been by intention, I thought it was quite smart. But I do want to talk about the ending. So let's get that spoiler clacks in. There we go. It does it three times. I wish it did, but I'm sorry it does. There you go. Yeah, we'll get a bit stronger on the old Claxon in future episodes. So for me, the ending, right? So I don't think we need to say exactly what happens. You guys know it. If you've seen the film, you will know what it's about. For me, this is a bit where it stops being as bold as it was and it cops out a bit. And by that, I mean, it goes for catharsis. When I think a more powerful and potent ending would have been if the characters, the male characters, got away with it, even after she did what she did. I understand why it went the way it did, but I think that would have been a more shocking and powerful ending. It would definitely have been more shocking, but I think that film needed to make a point that you can't have a film like that and have the men get away with it. It, It's almost a political film, this, with uh, an important message for women. And if you had the blokes essentially getting away with it by murdering her, then what kind of message does that tell? You need her to have... And I think that with the Cassie's character would have made plans. You're not going to turn up to a stag dude dressed as a stripper and not have made plans for the event of your possible killing or assault. This is one of the things I was thinking during the scenes where you see her, for example, in the clip with McLovin. You see her later drawing on a, a notebook, implying that she's done this to hundreds of men. And it just seemed to me unlikely that she wouldn't have gone through a similar experience that she does at the end during one of those hundreds of events. Men, if they, a lot of men who had gone through that would have treated her much worse than, you know, Seth from the OC does and McLovin does. Yeah, I, I get what you mean with that. But I guess that the film's making a point about how this stuff goes on in the background. It's not just bad guys, it's so-called nice guys that will take advantage of women. I think, like, if you're holding a mirror up to what I think... Emerald Fennell's trying to say then the reality is that people do get away with stuff like rape convictions are pretty low that was where I was coming from with it that whilst it would have been very dark and it's a film that flirts between dark comedy I think that would have been dark that even though she's gone to all this effort she's still not believed even in death I think that would have that would have really worked for me. But I thought there was a subsequent point to it that almost to say the authorities don't really care when someone's raped and the only way to get someone to, to listen is when it's too late and there's been a murder. That was my take on it, but I don't know whether that's right or not. You're right, though. This is one of the films, probably the mo- the film out of all eight, actually, that would be a film that you would come out and you would instantly just want to have a chat about it with whoever you saw it with or with someone else that had seen it because it does, it does generate discussion. There's so many things that it raises, and I think that's partly what I particularly liked about it. I wanted to give a shout-out to Bo Burnham as well, actually, because, uh, Mason, you described him as a comedian, which he is, and he, I think he had one of the first viral videos of, you know, the beginning of YouTube, because I remember watching... Yeah, big YouTuber, yeah. ...playing that song, he's like Amboyo or whatever, on, like, a keyboard, a piano, which you can clearly tell he's talented at, like, whatever age he was then, he was a teenager, I would guess. But he also directed Eighth Grade from a few years ago, which was very, very good. Yeah, uh, so yep. he's clearly a talented guy, he? and he's 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 good in this. He is good, and he's got good chemistry with Kerry Mulligan. <laughs> See, this is the thing. Not so much so. It's amazing. Your comment is always about age being the problem, and I'm pretty sure Bo Burnham is probably younger than all of us, or broadly the same age. But 
that's another thing that just makes you frustrated. People that are multi-talented. It's like he's directed, he's a decent actor. He's obviously charismatic enough that he can run a YouTube channel. Obviously, I'm too old, I'm, I'm too old to, to watch YouTube celebrities, but yeah, there, there we Jink go. If, Jink, if we get big enough, we could shout out, who's that uh, YouTuber that like has boxing matches, or he's got like a boxing match against like some UFC fighter? Uh, Jake, Jake of something. Yeah, I'm Jake calling Paul. him out now. I'll call him out now. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe not the best guy to call out. He's, he's just been accused of sexual assault today. <laughs> oh, well, he's appropriate to be talking about a disfilming. I, I mean... <laughs> There's not much that makes me feel old. I still feel that I'm younger than I am, but YouTube stars and stuff, I'm just like, what the... Yeah. Old man shouting at clouds with that. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Promising Young Woman then. So this has got five Oscar nominations. It's not available yet, but by the time you listen to this podcast, it almost certainly will be in the UK because it's been released for streaming on Sky Cinema on April the 16th, which is Friday. So another one that if you get the chance check it out. The five nominations that it has are for Best Picture, Best Director for Emerald Fennell, Best Actress for Kerry Mulligan, Best Original Screenplay and Best Film Editing. So again, another film that we'll see how it does in a couple of weeks' time. Moving on to the last couple of films of this episode on 2020 and we'll we'll go with The Trial of the Chicago 7. We have to make a decision right now, a decision I just assumed we'd already made four months ago when trial prep began. Are we using this trial to defend ourselves against very serious charges that could land us in prison for 10 years? Or are we using it to say a pointless fuck you to the establishment? Fuck you. That is what I was afraid. I don't know if you were saying fuck your answer. I was also confused. If we leave here without saying anything about why we came in the first place, it'll be heartbreaking. If the jury finds us guilty, we're not going to be leaving here at all. And the only thing we need to say about why we came here is it wasn't inside violence. I'm a jury. Why? The trial shouldn't be about us. I would love it if it wasn't about us, but it definitely is. If you've ever watched The West Wing or seen films like A Few Good Men or The Social Network, You've probably worked out from that clip that this is an Aaron Sorkin film, whether it's written or directed. In this case, it's his second film as director. It's The Trial of the Chicago 7. You know what you're going to get with Aaron Sorkin. You get fast-paced dialogue, an ensemble cast, slick editing, and a not-so-subtle political edge. And after directing Molly's Game a few years ago with Jessica Chastain, he's back in the director's chair after being better known for writing up to this point. I'll put my cards on the table right now. This is a kind of movie that is 100% right up my street. I absolutely loved this film. It was the only film that I managed to see at the cinema out of the eight nominees. And since that time, I spent a lot of time recommending it to various people who have mostly liked it. And I think it's a film that's got mass appeal and has something to appeal to everyone. Although we'll find out if you two agree with that shortly. It's a barnstorming courtroom drama full of Sorkin's trademark ticks and flourishes about the trial of a group of protesters who were accused of crossing state lines to incite riots at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. Thought it was brilliant entertainment. It's a good old-fashioned star-studded drama that explores interesting themes with intelligence and nuance. And it mostly takes place in a courtroom, as mentioned. So the Chicago Seven were seven men, or technically eight. We mentioned Black Panther Bobby Seale earlier. He is the eighth man, despite being nowhere near the riots when they happened. The film is constructed through a series of flashbacks and some real-life footage to bring to life the events that are being discussed in the courtroom. The Sorkin's no stranger to courtroom drama, having penned one of the high points for the genre in A Few Good Men. 
nor is he a stranger to sharp, insightful and witty dialogue, as basically his full resume has demonstrated, and he's a perfect match for this material. I mentioned it's got an ensemble cast, and this film has as stellar an ensemble as I've seen in one film in a long time. You've got Oscar winners like Mark Rylance and Eddie Redmayne, nominees like Michael Keaton and Franklin Geller. Then you've got Emmy and Golden Globe winners and nominees such as Sasha Baron Cohen, who is nominated for his role in this film, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Jeremy Strong and Yaya Abdul-Mateen II. It's a really excellent cast. They're all perfectly suited to the roles that they play. And the background to this, I mean, you could do some reading on it on the background, but essentially it was a variety of left-wing organisations who were protesting against the Vietnam War at the Democratic National Convention. They were met by police and a fight broke out. One of those groups had batons, right gear and tear gas. The other group didn't. It probably doesn't take a genius to work out which was which. The trial and the film is about exploring what happened as a result of that. I mean, look, I've set my stall out in this one. I love this film. It did help seeing it in the cinema. It is a Netflix release, so it's available just now. It's quite long. I think it's over two hours, but I was absolutely gripped from start to finish. So let's see what you thought about this one. Bigham. Um, so I think I'm not as positive about it as you. I thought it was decent. I thought it was quite an easy watch. So I think I watched it on like a Sunday night, stuck it on. You know, I was quite enjoying it. It's, it's well told, I would say. However, when I was sort of thinking about it after, I was like, have I just been served up the typical oversimplified, dumbed down nonsense that you get on Netflix? And I know it's a film, but Netflix tends to do that to me. I, I did quite like the light and humorous tone throughout, and I thought that quite worked actually quite well for a legal drama, despite there being a serious point to the full thing. But I kind of felt... On one hand, did that make it miss the serious points that it was trying to make? I did do a bit of research after it, reading up about the trial, and I think there was a lot more shocking turns and, and complexities and context that were probably left out because of Sorkin's quite formulaic take. So, for example, his, his main focus seemed to be pointing out a couple of bad apples to do with like, the judge, rather than having a go at like larger systemic issues that led to the trial in the first place. Uh, on the next bit, I'm going to say, Mason, you're going to have to play that wee klaxon. There we go. Ah, uh-huh, there we go. So I don't know if this is much of a spoiler because it's a historical event, but the, we've got to speak about the end in here. So the the part at the end where they go to closing statements and you get, I, I think it's Eddie Redmayne's character, I can't remember off the top of my head, and he starts listing out the names of the soldiers who died in Vietnam. By the way, he omits the Vietnamese names, which was something that Tom Hayden read out in real life, albeit he didn't read this as a closing statement, he read this during the trial. But then we get hit with cheesy music, hands in the air, fist pumps, claps, and in a freeze frame. Fucking hell, what was Adam Sorkin thinking? It infuriated me even more when it goes back to my earlier point that this could have been substituted for a much better ending. We could just have had William Kunstler, who... It was Mark Rylance and had his closing arguments which condemned the system, brought the injustices that the revolutionaries were treated through history. I mean, the guy in real life was an absolute badass and despite the fact he was the lawyer, he ended up serving more time in jail than the rest of the guys who were actually on trial because of contempt of court charges. And by the way, Mark Rylance, in my opinion, was the best thing in the film. But we missed all that because we had this cheesy, pishy ending that I didn't like. Pretty simple as. Mason. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I was a bit worried going into this that I wouldn't understand it because uh, I hadn't seen the trial of the Chicago Six. (laughs) (laughs) How long have you been workshopping that one? 
Uh, sorry, I'll get into it now. Uh, so honestly, I do, I do think that this film is an absolute riot and that pun is, again, 100% intended. I have a, such a good time watching this. You don't get many courtroom dramas that are actually fun to watch, that have cutaways to stand-up comedy, that have proper punch-the-air moments, literally, as you mentioned at the end. I'll say there's two reasons why I think this film is so good. One of them is Aaron Sorkin's sharp and witty script. I guess that's part of the course with Sorkin, but this is the perfect setting for him. You mentioned A Few Good Men. The previous two films he'd done to this, uh, Molly's Game and Steve Jobs, I would say they're largely disappointing. And this is the first one of his directed films that I think really hits his sweet spot. This is the kind of backstory and material that he works well with. The second reason I thought this film was so good is, again, the casting. Jeremy Strong, who's so good in Succession. Sasha Baron Cohen, who plays it arguably a little bit straight. They're a great double act. Mark Rylance, obviously, is good. He's good in everything. Frank Langella plays a cracking baddie in The Judge. Uh, and I even tolerated Eddie Redmayne, which is saying something. Yeah, I don't like him either. No, he's a little... I don't know why. Uh, so yeah, you know, two hits and a miss, it sounds like. I didn't mean to be as negative as that. I did enjoy watching it. It just... Something just bucked me about it when I was thinking about it after it more than anything else. Sasha Barracone, when he was on screen, I kept getting that guy. Who was the character he played where he went to that festival in America and he was on stage and he was singing about Donald Trump? I can't, I can't remember. Um, <laughs> what, in the, it, the new Borat? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I kept getting him in my head and it was confusing me because he was playing a more serious role in this, albeit there was a humorous edge or a humorous tone to some of the bits. But yeah, that's my own fault. <laughs> so. <laughs> I think some of Sorkin's stuff, it's interesting the points that you raise, because I didn't get that with this Bingham, but there has been some of his work where he forgets that he's trying to make entertainment and he just like tries to make political points. I don't know if you've ever seen any of his TV series The Newsroom, which had its moments, but it was basically like the West Wing on steroids and it was basically just, he used Jeff Daniels' character as the newsreader to make really like aggressive political point. <laughs> that was obviously yeah. Sorkin speaking through the character. I think this, it uses the ensemble well. If people are picking problems with promising young women's ending, they should be picking problems with the ending of this one. <laughs> Is that right? I'll tell you what, I'll need to watch it again and I'll let you know, you know if I've changed my mind. <laughs> Um, this is nominated for six Oscars as well. Best Picture, Baron Cohen has a Best Supporting Actor nomination. It's got Original Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing. And it's also got an Original Song nomination for a song played over the bloody end credits called Hear My Voice by Daniel Pemberton and Celeste. Can't be doing with Celeste. Is, is that Can't Celeste that was with Daphne? It's not Daphne and Celeste, is it? No, it's not Daphne and Celeste. <laughs> <laughs> it's a new, I, I didn't know they'd split up. <laughs> you know, you know, um, Emily Sunday was everywhere about ten years ago. Yeah. Well, Celeste, Celeste is Celeste is the new Emily Sunday. Okay, I'll take your word for it. And as mentioned, this is available on Netflix right now. So if you haven't seen it already, it's already been out here for about six months. So what the hell have you been doing? There's not been anything else to do this last six months. So get it watched. Okay, final film of the evening then, and that is Nomadland. Bo never knew his parents, and we never had kids. If I didn't stay, if I left, it would be like he never existed. I couldn't pack up and move on. He loved Empire. He loved his work so much. He loved being there. Everybody loved him. So I stayed. Same town, same house, 
It's like my dad used to say, what's remembered lives. I maybe spent too much of my life just remembering that. So, unless you've been living on Mars, stuck your head into that dusty ground, you'll be consumed by the hype in Nomadland. It's got nominations galore, numerous award wins, and it's hotly tipped to, to sweep up here, hence it's the, the last film that we're covering. It's quite a unique film. It is based on a book of the same name under the direction of Chloe Zhao, who over the last five years and her two other films has carved out a bit of a reputation as a masterful independent filmmaker. So Nomadland in itself is a bleak road movie about the dispossessed, left behind in modern American western Nevada. The kind of people are those who have been chewed up, spat out by the American capitalist machine and ultimately they become outcasts as they live in on materialistic life, a bit like new age hippies in their mobile homes. Now I did say it's a bit of a unique film and the reason for that really is that it rests in the film's form. It's a kind of docu-fiction I think, if that's a phrase that's well known, I don't know. It's got a non-narrative style and that's loosely and bloody slowly, I may add, unfolds as we follow Fern, played by Frances McDormand, as she meanders about Nevada after choosing this lifestyle after losing everything in the Great Recession. Fern is in effect the backbone of the film and she randomly interacts with characters who are themselves semi-fictional, so they're played by real nomads rather than actors, and they share, I guess, almost real-life versions of their life stories, and that helps to guide the script. So... If we get the Scott Bingham film checklist out, what do we think my views are? So we've got bloody grim, tick, depressing, tick, poverty, tick, and nothing really happens, tick. So you'd think I'd love this one. Well, you'd be wrong. I found this incredibly dull and boring. I know I always rabbit on about films where nothing really happens and say I love them, but clearly stuff does happen in those films. They tend to be stories about characters, relationships, struggles, feelings, dreams. Fuck me, Nomadland. Literally, hee-haw happens. I mean, I spent a few minutes watching a potter about aimlessly in an Amazon warehouse. Come on. I think one of the main issues for me is... So the events which have happened to Fern have already happened outside of the film. She's already made her life choice. She's already went to follow the nomadic lifestyle. So it's almost like a coming-of-age film flipped on its head. I just didn't have anything to grab onto. It's just a ton of scenes of Fern doing everyday things. There's an odd story with a smelly modern-day hippie going on about it. We then cut to that bit. She then pisses around for a bit, drives to a new car park and meets someone else who says something else. On the plus side, it is beautifully shot and there are some really powerful moments due to the inherent sadness in some of the stories from those real life, if you like, characters, particularly Swanky and Bob as well. I did kind of wonder whether this film appeals to a more American audience given the nomadic lifestyle it's more of an American thing, but guys, tell me I'm missing something here because I must be for this to be plotted so high. So I think we'll go with Wattie. Yeah, I like this film a lot. I understand what you've said about it. It is a film where not a huge amount happens. It's essentially a series of simple encounters that Fern has with the different people she comes across on her journey, some more consequential than others where the characters philosophise about life and how they fit into it. I thought most of those scenes were quite moving. I thought it was quite profound, the way that they just discussed how their lives had panned out, what the future held, and where they were. 
it's a hard film to describe because it is quite simple in terms of how it's constructed. It's, it's not any kind of big scenes. It doesn't build to any dramatic crescendos. There's one character that she meets who's the only other known actor in the film and you expect it to go in a certain direction and maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But I, I like that it defies your expectations. To your point about like it, it joining after she's made that decision, I think it is very subtly a film about grief and that comes out in the conversation that she has with Bob Wells' character, who is a real-life nomad who plays himself. It's about grief not just for her husband who has passed away, but grief for the life that she had and a life that's no longer there. There's a bit at the beginning where it talks about a town called Empire in Nevada, which is a real-life town or was a real-life town where there was one industry, everybody that lived in the town worked in that local industry, and the industry shut down, so people were you're basically left in a, a place with, with no industry. It's not something that you can re- really relate to in UK terms because everything's quite compact and close together. But in the vastness of America, I think it comes across more. But I, I think I really got into her head. This is someone who's built a life with her husband over a number of years. They've built a life with friends and family and that's just gone. And how do you cope with that? It's very quiet and subtle how it plays that out. And I think Frances McDormand, I can't imagine anyone else in the role. It's it's a very unshowy performance is, is probably the best way to put it. From my perspective, I've always found myself drawn to films about people who choose to live a life that I don't think I would ever be bold enough to try and live myself. And I thought this, it, it drew out the appeal in a way of, of leaving everything behind and starting a French without forgetting the negatives of it. A film that actually reminded me of a little bit was Into the Wild, a film from just over 10 years ago. The main character in that is a bit stupid, but is, you can buy into the romanticism of it all. But anyway, I've, I've kind of rambled on enough about this. I, I really, really like this film. I, I bought into it completely and I, I was fully engrossed in it. Scott Bilden. Well, I said Scott Bilden then. Because the reason I've got I've got your name wrong because I'm so pissed off with you. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> this film is a this film is a masterpiece, and I don't say that lightly. It's I, I when this film finished, I just thought, wow, it should, for me this should win best film, best director, best actress, best cinematography. It should even win best score, which outrageously isn't even eligible for. I think this film is balm for the soul. I usually write notes when I'm watching a film for this podcast and I hardly wrote a thing during this because I was so swept up in Frances McDormand's portrayal. I think she's an absolute marvel in this. From the very first scene when she's packing up a storage unit and she cries into her husband's jacket, I was invested. There's so much of the film that's just her inside her RV. And you've obviously mentioned that as a criticism, but for me, that's where you find out the most about her. I could tell what she was thinking, what she was going through, how she was transitioning to this new life. I love the incidental conversations that she has with people that she bumps into. They all have depth and meaning. I also loved, and you know, you mentioned this, but that most of the most of the other characters are real life nomads. The cinematography in this film is absolutely stunning. Every scene seems to have been shot either at sunset or sunrise, which means that you get these amazing color palettes and you get vistas that you only get in America. Shots into the wilderness. It finishes on a poignant shot as well, which I I, I really liked. The score, honestly, as soon as this film ended, the first thing I did was to go on Amazon and try and buy it. Maybe I was corrupted by watching her having such a lovely time in an Amazon warehouse, which is maybe the one sticking point of this film. But the album, the the, the reason that the score isn't eligible is because it's an existing piece by a composer called Ludovico Enwadi. And I see what you think of this, Bingham. He spent a week walking through the forest. and At the end of every day he would go back to his little hut in the forest and he would write piano music 
and he's released seven albums, one per day of his visit. So I was trying to buy the Nomadland soundtrack, but unfortunately, to buy the whole thing, you've got to buy seven friggin' albums. So, you know, I, I really loved it, but I've not spent 150 quid on seven vinyls, mate. <laughs> and I, and I, I can't speak highly of it. I think I want to marry this film. I really, really liked it. It's swept up by it. It's such a powerful performance. Don't think I can criticise it. And honestly, you, you want to give your head a shake. You don't know what you're talking I, I really about, wanted yeah. to like it. The problem was I watched it. I remember watching the trailer and been like, I cannot wait to see this. This looks right up my street. It ticks all the boxes. And I just couldn't get into it. Maybe, maybe I was in a bad mood. I don't know. What did you like about the score? Oh, I just did my head in. I did like, I do agree on the cinematography. The, there's some shots where she's walking through that weird sort of... Those little, like, trailer park type like, thing. Yeah, yeah. And I, it just annoyed me. And I think Sarah was saying to me, she was like, oh, I think that score is like a piano version of like a, a cheesy pop song. Maybe that just marred my thoughts on it. It just started to really irritate me. I think it's actually a piano version of And the River Flows from More Working Girl. <laughs> I don't like I don't like that then. I don't know, man. I, I clearly I've missed something because everyone's that comes about, aren't they? And you guys liked it, but I don't know. It's not for me. It's a clear winner for me. There's a reason why this is like massively odds on favourite. It's the best film of the year for me. Yeah, for me, it is as well. I, I would agree with you, Mason. I think it is pretty much a masterpiece. I mean, I'm, I'm not someone that tends to watch films again, but I think this is one when it does come out in cinemas. So, in terms of this. The release for this, it's due to come on Disney Plus on the 30th of April with a cinema release to follow. Similar to Sound of Metal, actually. Sound of Metal's due to come out in cinemas on the 17th of May, I think it is, when cinemas are scheduled to reopen across the UK. This is a film that I think, uh, if I'm not just dizzy in pubs with lockdown being over, then I would like to go and see it in the cinema. So there we have it. This was nominated. It's only only nominated for six, actually. So six is the top apart from Mank, which, which had ten, as we discussed. So Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress for Frances McDormand, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Cinematography, and Best Film Editing. We'll see you shortly, but this is clearly the frontrunner for some of those awards. I think it'll win all six. That's my guess. This brings us to the end, and instead of discussing whether we think they've made the right decision, it's, as always, for us discussing what we would pick as the winner so I mean I think we've we've given the game away Mason for me it's Nomadland it sounds like it's yep, the same, same for you it, Bingham guessing it's not Nomadland uh, but, but what are you going for? Yeah I'm going for Minari, Minari. I loved it I'm actually not really one for watching films again so close together but I was I'll easily watch that again and I will be watching it again and sit and just with my eyes closed and think about shit after it I loved it <laughs> Very good Excellent. So that takes us to the end of, of this show. As I say, we will be back with a shorter episode next week. I'll just act as a wee preview for the, the Oscars. We'll be talking about the main awards and who we think should win. There will be some duplication, good old duplication, but there's also some other stuff. There's one film I'm looking forward to ripping apart, uh, but we'll get to that then. I'm hoping that by then Scott Bingham has watched Nomadland again and he actually realises the error of his ways. <laughs> that, that, that's your homework. I will not be watching it again. There's only one thing left to do then, and that is to reveal what we're covering next on the main episode of Revisiting the Oscars. And Mason, it's your choice next. It is. So let's talk trilogies. There are only two trilogies whereby each film in the trilogy has been nominated for Best Picture. And you you know what they are, right? We do indeed, yeah. The Godfather and uh, The Lord of the Rings. So as we talk about each film nominated, it's important that we review the three films in the trilogy in order. 
Uh, so I was left with either 1972, when the first Godfather film came out, or 2001, when the first Lord of the Rings came out. And so I had a quick look at what was else was dominated that year. And to be honest with you, I didn't particularly fancy a three-hour Swedish period drama. So um, 1972 got the boot for now. And I've gone for 2001. So 2001's films, uh, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, Gosford Park, which is uh, Julian Fellow's arguable inspiration for Downton Abbey, In the Bedroom, which I hadn't heard of, but it's apparently a crime drama, Moulin Rouge, which is uh, Baz Luhrmann's Parisian musical, and the winner, which was A Beautiful Mind, which uh, is about maths and that. Uh, so... <laughs> I already see, see when you've mentioned those films, Mason. Already thinking yeah. of some of the stuff that we've talked about in the tropes. A beautiful mind has lots of people writing numbers on walls. Oh, <laughs> we've got Moulin Rouge, which is a musical, so right up Bingham Street, clearly. <laughs> and uh, what was the one that you mentioned second? Oh, Gosford Park. It's our old Don't... friend Robert Altman. Yeah. Oh, is it a Robert Altman? <laughs> I think it might be his last film. He died shortly after that, I believe. I think that was after he was made to watch Nashville again. <laughs> I like Nashville. Let's, well, I'm looking forward to talking about that again. So yeah, we've got we're back to a nice five films as well. So uh, you don't have to cram ten or eighteen as we have done the last couple of months. Oh, there we go, folks. So that's been the 2020 episode. So hope you did enjoy it, and hope you'll be watching the Oscars alongside us, seeing how all of these films get on. As always, it would be much appreciated if you can. Do all that you can in social media, whether it's Instagram, Twitter, that's your thing. Share, like, retweet, comment, send us questions, whatever's your bag, or leave reviews, preferably five-star, on your podcasting app of choice. But thanks, as always, for listening. It'll be goodbye from me. Bye-bye. Cheers, see ya. See ya. But if they follow you,